0: Good morning, friends. It is so good to be with you all this morning. It's not very often that I am at a loss for words, uh, but it has happened this morning. Thank you guys so much for the prayers, for the encouragement, for all things that have happened. The problem with being at a loss for words, though, is I'm getting paid to speak, and so uh, I have to try to overcome that a little bit here this morning, but wow, so much has happened recently. The day we've been hoping for, praying for, a lot of us have been working for. Uh, is here. And so thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. As that passage in Thessalonians said, uh, you have already overwhelmed us with thanksgiving and gratitude and appreciation. The gift cards to restaurants really helps, but you have been really, really helping and blessing us thus far. Uh, On this morning, kind of the first morning as I take this pulpit, I would be remiss if I didn't thank and recognize and, and have you guys thank and recognize the folks who have filled this pulpit for the last nine months or so. There's been a lot of folks that have filled this space. Uh, these are folks that have other full-time jobs, you know. And a lot of other things that they've been doing. Uh, men, and women who, men and women who have spent a lot of time, countless hours, trying to bring a word for you every week. And they've got thousands of other things to be doing And so I just want to read their names off. And if you are here, if you're one of the names that I would list off, would you just stand uh, so we could recognize you? Here are some folks that have filled in the last few months. Brian Rickman, Nathan Harrison, Dave McDonald, Ryan Long, Mike Sexton, Dan Sarian, Jeremiah Cornynez, I hope I got that right, uh, Dave Beatty, David Perez, and Julie Burns. Would you again thank these folks? Ryan, you can sit down now, you can sit down now, yeah. Uh, thank you guys, I, I can't thank you enough for filling this space and feeding this group uh, to, so we could get to this point. One thing before we begin the new series and the message this morning, I just wanna say one thing, and I don't know if it's appropriate or not, but you know, we got the big, the big awkward issues out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I just wanna say this. Church, it's time. It is time for us as a group of people to bring in the kingdom of God into this place in a way that we haven't in a long, long time. And it is time for us as a church to reach hundreds, if not thousands of people with the gospel message. It is time for us to change our lives, our families' lives, our neighborhoods' lives. It's time to change Littleton. Are you with me on that? It is time to do that. And something I've heard a lot over the last couple of months is that folks are kind of watching and waiting to see what's happening at West Bowls. Enough watching and waiting. It's time to get to work. It's time to start doing something. And that means that we need you. We need your time, we need your talents, we need your treasure, we need your money, we need all of you, we need you to be all in. We need your friends, we need your non-believing family members, we need it all. It's gonna take sacrifice, it's gonna take commitment to get this church to a place where we're not worried if we're relevant anymore. Where we're not worried if we can pay the bill for a huge water main leak that just happened this last week in the parking lot. It's going to take all of you, and I hope that you're all in, because I'm all in, and I'm ready to see what this bride can look like when she is at her best. So let's do that, all right? Are you with me on that? Uh, Just say an amen if you're with me on those things. All right, about half of you. There are others I will talk to one-on-one. Just twist your arm. Let me pray. We'll begin this morning. God, I thank you for this place. What a sweet, what a sweet place. What a sweet group of people. Um, we now ask that you would move in this place as you did at Pentecost and that you would speak to each of us in a way that we can fully understand and resonate with and in a way that would change us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's amazing how the way you finish a sentence makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? See if you can finish these sentences for me. Absence makes... No, I'm sorry, incorrect. Absence makes me totally forget about you. (laughs) Or how about this one? All work and no play makes Jack? Again, incorrect. All work and no play makes Jack the CEO. (laughs) Slow and steady? No, 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 no. Slow and steady gets you run over on C470. (laughs) Sticks and stones may break my bones, but... Uh, no, wrong again. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but my defense attorney will break your bank account. <laughs> and the more things change, again, incorrect. The more things change, the more expensive they get. All right, that's, just how, that's just how it goes. You see, the way you finish a sentence changes everything. It changes the whole essence of the sentence, and that definitely applies to a sentence like this. See if you can finish this sentence. Thomas is, that's a scary thought, right? You can go a lot of different directions with that one. Thomas is the most attractive specimen of man that Colorado has ever been privileged to behold. <laughs> See, the way you finish the sentence makes all the difference in the world. Or Thomas is a skinny, balding, white guy who thinks he's a lot funnier than he actually is the way you finish the sentence. So the question that we have to wrestle with as individuals, but even more so as a church body, is this. God is. How do you finish this sentence? Because probably more important than how you finish all other sentences combined is how you finish this single sentence. This is more important than all other sentences combined. The way you finish this sentence has the power to change your life. The way you finish this sentence has the power to change all of eternity. So we've gotta figure out how do you finish this sentence. Now here's why I emphasize this sentence so much. Here's why I think it is so important. If we truly are made in the image of God, if we have been created to look like and model and emulate God, then whoever we think he is is who we will become. Does that make any sense? Another way to say that is our image of ourselves is determined and based off of the image we have of him. We will become who we think he is. And so if you think God is something we've just made up, if God is non-existent, if God is dead, if he is some distant cosmic watchmaking deity who could care less about you or could care less about our world, then that will probably resonate, manifest itself in your life you'll probably struggle with direction, meaning, and purpose. If God is angry, if he's an angry judge, if he barks out laws, if he's just a overbearing parent who's trying to stop you from having fun or waiting to get you in trouble, waiting to catch you breaking the law, then again your life is probably going to reflect that and you might struggle with joy and freedom and peace. If God is some heavenly Santa Claus for you, some magic genie who's supposed to give you all the good toys and gifts that you deserve because you've been a good little boy this year, then again it's probably gonna manifest itself in your life somehow and you're gonna want to take things and you're gonna struggle giving them away. If for you God is a big question mark, someone you want to believe in but struggle to do so because so much pain in your life, so much struggle in your life. Again, that's probably gonna manifest itself in your life and you might struggle with trust, forgiveness, and mercy. See how that works? Whoever you think he is is who you end up becoming. And so we've gotta spend a lot of time answering this question. Who is God? And here's the problem I have. Most of us have allowed someone else to finish this sentence for us. We've just adopted their answer. We've heard a pastor, or we've read a book, or our parents told us in one way or another that God is such and such and such and such. And you just adopted that definition. And that, that's okay, but it's not great. See, two problems come out from that. If you've let somebody else define this for you, if you've let somebody else finish this sentence for you, we've got a couple of problems. The first is this. It's hard to get all that excited about something or to help others get all that excited about something that you haven't experienced firsthand. Maybe you've seen this happen before with a restaurant or a theme park, right? Somebody gives you a suggestion. you got to go to Bojo's Pizza. I mean, Bojo's Pizza is just where it's at. The slices are huge. The crust is four feet deep. You smother it in honey. It's dessert. It's pizza. It's Bojo's. (laughs) I'm like spitting as I'm talking about it. Like, ah, Bojo's. Oh, really? You've been to Bojo's? No, I've never been to Bojo's. Just heard a lot about Bojo's. You've got to go to Disneyland. I mean, Disneyland is the place to go. And you've got to do this fast passing. thing. You've got to park right here. And if you get there at 845 and you go this direction first and you backtrack over to, you've got to go, wow, how many times have you been to Disneyland? Never, actually. I just read that online. See how that changes it? And my fear is that for a lot of Christians, we talk about God in that way. Well, God is this and God is that. Really, how do you know God in that way? Well, I don't actually know God in that way, I just read about it. Or I just heard somebody else talk about him in that way. And church, I wanna remedy that. I want you to finish this sentence for yourself. So whenever you talk about it, it's first-hand experience that changes everything. And the second problem is if we let somebody else define this for us, what typically happens is their their answer, the way they finish the sentence is lame, boring, and a little too small. It's not big enough. Let me read to you what Stephen Charnock, an author and speaker, said. We cannot ever have a full notion of God, he says. Thus we should endeavor to make our understanding of him as high and as pure as we can. Conceive of God as excellent without imperfection. A spirit without parts, great without quantity, perfect without quality, everywhere without place, powerful without members, understanding without ignorance, light without darkness, imagine all of those things. And when you've arisen to the highest place, when you can think of God as great beyond your wildest imagination, think of him infinitely above all of that. And then, whatsoever conception comes to mind, Say, this is still not God. God is so much more than this. See, I'm not sure we even have those that first list down, let alone think bigger than that, let alone think infinitely bigger than that. That's who our God is. God is so much more. And that's why I think people throughout the scripture struggle to describe him. They struggle to talk about God. If you read Paul or if you read John, if you read Isaiah, it's like they're grasping at straws, right? After they have an experience with the Lord, it's like God was kind of like this and then it was kind of like a crystal sea. There was sapphires and, and rubies and it was kind of like an angels with eyeballs and wings and a lion's head. It was kind of like this, but, but nothing could come close to describing what it really was. You're trying to describe the indescribable. You're trying to explain the unexplainable. Good luck with that. God is, finish that sentence, where do you even begin? Right, where do you even begin? And yet we have to try. We need to do what we can to find words, to find images, to find phrases, to find concepts that would help us to relate to this God, that would help us make sense of who he is, that would help us to explain to our kids and to our neighbors who this God is. And so we have folks throughout the Bible who have tried, and I love the words they have used to finish this sentence. We have Moses, who says, the Lord is my strength. He's my defense, he's become my salvation, he's my banner, he's my God. David says, God is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my shield, my refuge, my strength, and of course, David says, God is my shepherd. That's how he would finish that sentence. You have the psalmist who proclaims again and again and again, God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in a love that endures forever. You have others who said God is their helper, their father, the king of kings, the defender of the powerless. There's a lot of different ways to finish that sentence, but you've got to finish the sentence. And I want you to finish it for yourself. I want you to figure out who God is for you. Here's why. Great faith, courageous faith. Faith that can move this mountain is dependent on who you think God is. You see, if he is weak, if he is small, if he's rather insignificant, so will your faith be. Chances are so will your life. But if he is great beyond measure, so will your faith be. Chances are so will your life. It's all about who God is. So we're gonna spend the next four weeks unpacking who God is. We could spend the rest of our lives in this series, but I thought four weeks was a good start. We'll pick the best four, the biggest four, and we've got to start this morning because there's so many to choose from. We've got to get going. Right, the Broncos aren't playing yet. right? Is that, it's not season time yet. Nothing else going on. So let's get into this. We've got to figure out who God is. And this morning, I want to share with you one that will serve as the foundation and the groundwork for all others. I want to share with you something that, uh, that was shared with me several years ago and it just changed the way that I understood God. And it's a trait of God that we see from the very beginning of Scripture, from the first line of Scripture to the very last. This is the trait, I think, that is the undercurrent of it all. This trait is seen in the garden. When God first handcrafts Adam and Eve and designs and develops them with such care and tenderness. And then we see it as he gives Eve away, kind of as the first father of the bride. He says, here you go, Adam. And then we see it as as he loves them, as he embraces them and actually goes to them even though they rejected and rebelled against him. And then we see in the book of Hosea where God compares himself to a husband who will always and forever take back his adulterous and estranged bride. Hosea 3.1 says it this way, then God said to me, start all over. Love your wife again, your wife who's in bed with her latest boyfriend, your cheating wife. Love her the way that I, God, love the Israelite people, even as they flirt and party with every God that takes their fancy. We see this in the book of Ezekiel where God does something miraculous. Ezekiel 16, let me read part of it for you. On the day you were born, your umbilical cord was not cut. You weren't bathed, you weren't cleaned up, you weren't rubbed with salt. You weren't wrapped in a baby blanket. No one cared at all for you. No one did a thing to care for you tenderly in these ways. You were thrown out into a vacant lot and left there, dirty and unwashed, a newborn baby that nobody wanted. And then I came by. I saw you, all miserable and bloody. Yes, I said to you, lying there, helpless and filthy, live, grow like a plant in the field. And you did, you grew up. You grew tall and you matured as a woman, full-breasted with flowing hair, but you were naked, you were vulnerable, you were fragile and still exposed. So I came by again and I saw you. Again, I saw that you were ready for love. I took care of you. I dressed you and protected you. I promised you my love and entered into a covenant of marriage with you. I, God, your maker, gave you my word. You became mine. I gave you a good bath. I washed off all the old blood. I anointed you with uh, uh, oils. I dressed you in a colorful gown and put leather sandals on your feet. I gave you linen blouses and a fashionable wardrobe of expensive clothing. I adorned you with jewelry. Ladies, I hope you're getting excited right now. Guys are like, what? what are you talking about? I placed bracelets on your wrists. I f- fitted you with a necklace, emerald rings, sapphire earrings, a diamond tiara. You were provided with everything precious and beautiful with exquisite clothes, elegant food, garnished with honey and oil. You were absolutely stunning. I made you the queen. Whoa. We see this trait of God in the stories that Jesus tells about a woman throwing a party for all of her friends because she found one small coin. The party probably cost 10 times the coin's value. We see it in the story of a shepherd leaving 99 good sheep behind because one crazy stupid one went away and yet he loved that one so much he didn't want it to be alone. Or how about a father, a distinguished father who risked ridicule, public scorn, public humiliation to not only welcome back but actually to run after his good-for-nothing pothead son. This is our God. This is who he is. We're gonna say it this way. God is a ludicrous lover. To say that he is loving is one thing, and I wouldn't disagree with you. To say that he is love is another thing, and again, I wouldn't disagree with you. But knowing him in this way is completely different. Knowing him as this, personally, first-hand experience, this changes everything, church, But I'm just not sure that most of us actually believe this to be true. Most of us actually think that God feels about us the way we feel about some of our family. Like we love them because we have to, but we don't really like them all that much. Like I'll do the family reunion thing with you only because we're blood, but besides that, I really don't want to have anything to do with you. We honestly think, deep down, that's how God feels about us. God loves me like I love Chipotle. Chipotle is great. I love Chipotle. It's a good burrito. I'm not gonna do anything crazy for Chipotle. If I pass by a Qdoba or even a Free Birds, I'd probably go there too. Right? Like I love Blue Sky. It's generic. You don't really love it. You just are pretty fond of it. Maybe I don't know how to describe it, but most of us don't feel as if God loves us. Another way to say it is God actually likes you. He likes you a lot. We've gotta figure out how to come to understand that. And here's how I did. Preacher named Billy Wilson shared this with me and it changed things. She wore my sweatshirt, even though it didn't fit her at all. It looked rather foolish, even ridiculous on her. She shouldn't have been wearing it in the first place, but she wasn't wearing it to make a fashion statement. She wore it because it was mine. Hang with me for a second, I'll make sense of that. Think back to the different ways that we show and express love to different people throughout life. Right now, my youngest Cassia shows love with kind of an open mouth, wet, sloppy assault, right? Like, ah. And it's cute at one and a half. At sixteen, it could cause some problems. <laughs> We're hoping she grows out of it, but that's how she shows love. In elementary school, you show love by chasing people around the playground. Or you draw pictures of people chasing each other around the playground. Or you write love letters that are pretty simple and straightforward. Do you love me? Yes, no, maybe. In middle school, we write the name of the person we love all over our binders, right? We stick notes in their lockers during passing period. And ladies, just, just, I'm I'm looking over here, I don't know if you still do that, but I used to hate when the the letters were little Chinese star lock boxes things, right? I couldn't open it, I ripped it, and then it read more like a treasure map. Like, do you like me? I can't even make sense of this thing. And then of course, there are mid-school dances, where every once in a while, a few brave soldiers will cross into enemy territory. (laughs) Some, never to be seen again. (laughs) Then there's high school, right? In high school, you talk on the phone all hours of the night, I love you more, no, I love you more, no, you hang up, no, you hang up. (laughs) And then there's my personal favorite, she wore my sweatshirt. Even though it didn't fit her at all, it looked rather foolish on her, even ridiculous. She shouldn't have been wearing it in the first place, but she wasn't wearing it to make a fashion statement. She wore it because it was mine. My girlfriend back in high school, you probably recognize her. This is us, our senior year. Yes, I had hair at one point. (laughs) It was real. I put enough L.A. looks uh, gel in there to cause this to happen to it. But, well back in high school, I used to work at a little restaurant called Cocopelli's Cafe and I worked there for three months because I had to buy this Tommy Hilfiger sweatshirt. I saw it at Dillard's, and then I saw the price tag. And three months later, I saved up enough after washing dishes and busting tables to buy this sweatshirt. Well, a few months into our dating relationship, Becca comes over, and she asks to borrow the sweatshirt. Ladies, 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 ladies. This is just something you don't do, okay? This is like asking for the keys to the hot rod or the remote to the TV. My sweatshirt? This is my Tommy Hilfiger sweatshirt. Well, she was so dang cute and I was so in love, I gave her the sweatshirt. And many of you have experienced something like that before. It's like four or five sizes too big, but we wear those things, and why? Why would we do that? Why would we wear an extra large Tommy Hilfiger sweatshirt? To make a fashion statement, to look cool? No, 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 you do it for love. You do it because you love the person to whom it belongs. 2 Corinthians 5.14 tells us that love compels. That means love grabs you by the neck and it forces you to do things you wouldn't otherwise do. And so we rock the jersey, we sport the coat, we wear the leather jacket because we love the person to whom they belong. We want to be as close to that person as possible. So we take their things and we put them on as if they're our own. Friends, I need you to hear something this morning. And I don't want you just to hear it. I want you to believe it in the depth of your being. The creator of the universe is madly in love with you. Each of you. He has your name written all over his binders. Scratch that, his hands. He wants to chase you across the playground. He will cross the abyss known as the mid-school gym floor to come and dance with you. He loves you so much, he's so incredibly fond of you to say the least. And I know that some of you don't believe me. Some of you don't honestly think that is true, that God would love you. If that describes you this morning, if you don't think that is true, then simply look at what he was willing to wear. You see, he bore the cross even though it looked foolish on him, even ridiculous. He shouldn't have been wearing this in the first place but he wasn't wearing this to make a fashion statement. He wore it because it was mine. He wore it because it was yours. This is ludicrous love. You wouldn't do this for a pet. I don't care how into cats you are. You wouldn't do this for a long lost relative, a business associate. You wouldn't do this for someone you're frustrated with, mad at, angered by. You would do this for the love of your life. You would do this because you are madly in love. You would do this because you are a ludicrous lover. Church, we are the love of his life. We are his deepest affections, the objects of his deepest affections. You see, most of us think these are great love stories, and they're okay, but nothing compares to this love story. It's the greatest one of all time. All right, let me just say something. I don't know if this will make sense, but hopefully it will. I, I've met many of you, and I like most of the people that I've met so far. <laughs> and chances are very likely that I would take a punch for you. If we were in a situation, I don't know where we would be where I would have to do that. I, don't, I hope we wouldn't be in situations very often where that was the case. But I would step in and say, punch me instead of him. I'd be hard pressed, though, to lay my life down for you if you were in a situation where you were gonna die or something was gonna happen to you, I don't think I would say, take my life instead of theirs. And I can guarantee you, I would never lay down the life of one of my little girls for you, ever. And yet, that's what God did for us, for me, for you. He's a ludicrous lover, and he's willing to do whatever it takes, even give away his precious son to show you how much, He loves you. Oh, it's incredible, is it not? So this week, I want you to do a couple of things for me. In response, in light of, in lieu of the fact of who God is, that he is this ludicrous lover, I want you to do a couple things. I would love for you to memorize Jeremiah 31.3. This is where God says, See, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I'll give you a simple verse to start off with. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it. God loves us with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love. So memorize Jeremiah 31.3. The second thing I want you to do is I want you to spend some time this week finishing the sentence, God is. Who is God to you? How would you finish that phrase? And I can't ever tell you how important it is that you spend some time coming to terms with what words immediately come to mind. He's distant, he's angry, he's hostile, he's frustrated. He's a lover of my soul. He's my father, my shepherd, my banner, the king of kings. How would you finish that sentence? Spend some time finishing that sentence. And then the last thing I want you to do is in honor of God being this. If he's the model, if he's the one we've been made to look like, you gotta do something ludicrous this week. Ludicrous in love. I don't know what that means for you. I don't know if that means actually, you know, rubbing your wife's shoulders even without her asking might be a ludicrous thing for you to do. Maybe something with your kids, a gift of some sort, words of affirmation, maybe it's a coworker, a boss, show somebody love in a way that is a little more extravagant than you might normally show it to them. Go ludicrous for a second. Be a ludicrous lover. Let me end this morning by reading and then praying over you the words of Job 42.5. He says this, my ears had heard of you, God, but now my eyes have seen you. You see, that goes from secondhand experience to firsthand. That's what I want for this church. Let me pray those words over you now. God, we don't want to just hear about you. We want to see you. And Lord, even more than that, we don't want just to see you, we want to actually embrace you and experience you and touch you and taste you. We want to be overcome by who you are. Lord, you are a ludicrous lover, and from the first page of the word to the very last, you are trying to show that to us. There are times where there's tough love, There are moments that are hard to explain, but Lord, overall, your nature is that of a ludicrous lover. Would we believe that to be true this morning, that there is nothing in this world that would cause you to love us less? Nothing my girls could do would ever stop me from loving them. Nothing. Help that to be true for our understanding of you to us. Make it so, God, where we believe that you are a ludicrous lover and we model and exemplify and emulate that love this week to our world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So good being with you guys this morning. Have a tremendous week. Go be ludicrous lovers in the name of Jesus.